Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you on a beautiful spring day here in the mountains of Utah. Quick housekeeping today. For those of you who missed the Montego Kickstarter, this Glass Immortals novella will be out officially on May 23rd. You can pre-order an ebook from your favorite online sellers, from my website on hardcover, or in audio from Audible if I get my rearing gear and upload it by the time this episode goes out. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is audio narrator and best-selling author Travis Baltry. Travis is a former video game developer, having worked on well-known games like Torchlight and Torchlight 2, and has built himself a new career narrating science fiction and fantasy, in particular Will White's best-selling Cradle of Books. Travis recently broke into writing with his own smash hit, the cozy fantasy Legends and Lattes. The sequel, Bookshops and Bone Dust, is out this November. We talk extensively about an author's varying relationship with the narrating process, as well as Travis's journey through his three major careers. We also chat about the heart behind cozy fantasy and the future of Travis's writing. Enjoy my conversation with Travis Baldry. I kind of love how you, in the writing world, came out of nowhere. Like, I understand that you have been doing audiobooks for a long time, but like Legends and Lades, like kind of just materialized in sort of my or, or like periphery awareness in the genre in the last like year. And that's amazing. It's like a huge success out of the gate. Uh, nobody's more surprised than me. That's for sure. I certainly wasn't ever really a twinkle in my eye. Um, I mean, even audiobooks are kind of new for me. So it's been a very, very interesting trip to get to this point. Well, so then so then, where does it start? Where do you kind of go from like suddenly jumping into audio and then into writing yourself? So I'm originally a game developer. I spent decades making video games and running video game studios. I used to be best known for making Torchlight um, and running Runic Games and a game called Fate that I made that a lot of people told me they played on their parents' Dells, <laughs> and which makes me feel really old. Uh, and I eventually retired from that to do audiobook narrating full time because I've been doing it on the side for fun. And it was just so it was such a relief to like change environments and to be working with book people and making things for book people. It was just so wholesome <laughs> <laughs> and and like fulfilling to do that. You know, I just never looked back. So I switched to narrating audiobooks. I've always been a voracious reader. And I really like spoken word ever since I came across Frank Muller, who was like my all time favorite narrator. He was reading like The Green Mile and Stephen King's Dark Tower series. And man, I just ate that stuff up. So I got to I got to read audiobooks. I really loved it. And um, all along in all of those careers, I always wanted to write a book like I have 
a friend of mine from high school drug out this hundred pages of the worst fantasy novel of all time that I started in high school. It was like super ambitious and just the, the purplest of prose, just the, the worst thing. Like, I think I went like bright red when I read it, but I, I tried to write a novel many different times and I failed abjectly every time. Um, I did national novel writing month, like, I don't know how many years and it was always a disaster. <laughs> so this just happened to be the first time I finished a book. So I always wanted to write one. And I think that reading audiobooks actually kind of made it easier to get it written because of all of the things I learned about writing and what I think about writing and what I personally think I want to do, or at least refining my taste about what I wanted to do that made it easier to accomplish eventually when I finally did it. And probably also a lowering of ambition. <laughs> now, that, that is super cool. I the The kind of the jump like at least from my side would be two audio, but like I, I think about that occasionally because audio is this, it feels very weird to me because it, it is clearly the same exact thing. You're reading it. You're reading the words that are on the page, but like if you want like the stark difference between audio and written word, just read it to yourself out loud. And you yeah. suddenly have an entirely different perspective about what's on the page. It's yeah. very strange. It's because, it's, I mean, my observation is that as a reader, when I'm reading off the page, I don't always do a very good job of translating it. Like I'm skimming or I get distracted or this part is boring and I skip past it or I don't actually properly translate like the emotional resonance of how this is compounded over this chapter. How do these people feel right now? I don't necessarily have that. So I get kind of this thinner version of the book when I read it to myself, depending on how well it's written or how engaged I am with it. Oh, absolutely. When you read out loud, you don't have... I'm not, I'm not going to, it's not a luxury, I guess. You don't have that out. You have to say every word with intention. You're constantly accumulating the emotional like temperature of all the people over the course of the scene and you're acting it and there's nothing else to do. And if you're paid to do it, you really can't be lazy about it. If it's like the boring part, that's not your favorite. You have to get out and do the heavy lifting to try and make it work. And it just makes you very cognizant of the actual function of the words to accomplish a thing. It's like you're seeing the machinery behind the words and how it elicits emotion and a response or doesn't because you're reading great stuff and terrible stuff and mediocre stuff and they all have things to tell you. And it's just very, very illuminating. And then there's a the second half of it, which I think is really weirdly useful and almost like a superpower is that if you read thousands of hours of other people's words out loud, you rewire something in your brain which is that you can hear your own voice saying the words before you say them in a way that you really would say them. And, you know, authors always talk about reading your words out loud to edit them, you know, and does my dialogue really work? Well, they got to read it out loud. And most people have to read it out loud to do that. But if you've spent that much time doing it as an audiobook narrator, you kind of get a shortcut in that you've already done, you're doing that automatically while you read because it's literally part of your job. And you've refined this weird, most people just aren't comfortable with their voice, but I am. I know exactly what I sound like when I say things. I know what this character voice sounds like before I say it out loud, which is kind of, it's, it's, it's weird and you wouldn't expect it. It is so weird. Like, uh, like, cause that's one of the earliest pieces of advice I ever got was read your own stuff aloud back to you. And I have never followed it. Like I'm, I'm terrified <laughs> of that. Like I, I'm genuinely scared of hearing my own words, like spoken back to me even to, in my own voice in someone else's voice like i'll listen to the first two chapters of a new book on the audio they'll send it to me early and i'll, I'll listen to it and kind of say oh this sounds great but man like i could not go further than maybe a chapter or two it's just 
I don't know. It's so bizarre to me. For you, is it a dissonance between what you wanted and what someone else did with it? No, it, like, so not at all. Like my audio okay. readers have all, all been excellent and I, I love them. Um, it is a, it is almost like a shyness. Like it is a, I don't want to face this thing because I know it so well on the page. Yeah. And, and oftentimes when you get something back, there's nothing you can do anyways. Like you can't edit it after the fact. Yeah. They're not going to say, could they reread this whole book now? I really wish they had done X, you know? <laughs> right. And so it, there's like part of me that feels like it's pointless. And another part of me feels like it's, it's like an uncanny Valley thing. Like I'm hearing something I know that I wrote, but someone else is doing something with it. Yeah. And that is so strange to me. Like I, I feel always kind of, uh, I threw on, this wasn't even that long ago. I don't think I had actually listened to the beginning of In the Shadow of Lightning. And a, a few months ago, I was doing some editing on the second book. And so I threw on the audiobook for a couple of chapters. And I'm literally sitting there going, this is really quite good. I, uh, right on. And there was like a part of my brain that was like, who wrote this? <laughs> and then I remembered I was listening to my own thing. This is my book. And like that's that's like a that sounds a little like bragging but it's totally not it's like a cognitive dissonance no. thing it's so bizarre but also kind of nice when you get just enough distance from something to be kind of like be able to appreciate and like your own work as yeah. a listener or a reader is pretty cool yeah yeah and it is it is it's like a it is like a it's a separate perspective it's like you're it's like you're outside of yourself as a writer mm -hmm. hearing that back yeah and i just i don't know part of me is like man i know that i should do that thing where i'm reading everything out loud in the final draft to make sure that the words sound right oh but man it's like part of me is lazy i don't want to do that work and then part of me is terrified i know quite a few authors that use text-to-speech to do it yeah and they'll just run it through text-to-speech so at least they have some sort of vocalized version of it out loud which helps them catch some things or it's not the same as acting and it's not the same as having like a real human's intent, but I think it, it gets you like 30% of the way there, maybe more. I don't know, depending on what you're looking for. I did have an experience like very early on in my career. I had one of those moments of like, you know, a, a young person's pure arrogance, right? Um, where I said to myself, I think Promise of Blood was out and I was working on Crimson Campaign. And I said to myself, you know, I should do, I should narrate my own self-published stuff. How hard could it be? And like, and I, and I read into like recording software, I read yeah, a chapter or two and listened back and holy crap, the realizing that you have no idea of the skill set that goes into an artistic performance is like, that's a very humbling thing. Well, the thing is, I, I honestly think most, most authors can learn it. It's just that it's, it is work to do. And you, it's like, everybody can talk. We can all read out loud. We can all say words. We all understand that this functions, but it's just the time taken to understand the weird nuances and needs of the spoken word for, for prose. Yeah. Like strange stuff. Like how do you, how do you manage your breath into vocalizing an attribution that comes after dialogue? How do you, how do you tip your pitch? How much of a lag time do you leave between the dialogue and the attribution? All of these weird little things matter into how easy it is to consume and hear and separate out the prose voice from the dialogue voice while also having you not like stutter over the stop. That's just like one little example of the kinds of weird things that you end up preoccupied with that you can learn, but they just take this time because you kind of have to run across them and um, understand and like internalize the solution to the problem. Yeah. Do you, um, do you find when you're reading, um, because from, from the other side as an author, this is something I've become preoccupied with um, that I think is bad 
for me to do. But when you when you're reading, do you prefer to kind of have an over explanation of the uh, of what's going on with the character to give them a certain aspect of the way they speak? Or do you prefer to kind of have it a little bit up for interpretation? I don't know if I'm explaining that question well. I think I think I do. Um, everything from like, do they have a growly voice to their accent to like, you know, things about their demeanor, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Set in the prose around the dialogue, informing the dialogue. Right, right. Yeah. My general preference is maybe a little bit, a tiny bit, but mostly I would like the dialogue to imply it. And I don't mean using really, really clunky, like... Um, like when people really try and force the uh, the accent into the dialogue, they add these weird dialectical things, you know. Right. I I've done that like once or twice. I, I I really don't like those. Not good. But I think a lot of your word choice really, do, and and this is where I think reading out loud comes in. Word yeah. choice implies an awful lot. You know, everything from the brevity of the sentences to the the complexity of the sentences to even how they use commas and pause how run on or is their dialogue. I prefer it to be in the dialogue, to just be baked into the dialogue. And for me, as a narrator, I find that, that I think the best dialogue does all that lifting on its own. There's sometimes you really do need it. Like, I really do need to know that this person has an Irish accent. It's actually important for some reason. But, um, and maybe I do want to know that he's got a deep voice. I read a lot of fantasy, so some of this matters. You know, the giant rock person has a deep voice. Okay, great. It's important for you to tell me if it's squeaky because that really does... There's like some dissonance that I would otherwise, you know, have. But right. in general, heavy lifting in the dialogue, if I can get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. I, uh, I've, I've found that I've, I've over in this new series I've been working on, I continuously have this problem um, that I think mostly gets taken out in editing. But first drafts, I, I uh, have this problem where I, I continuously am, am trying to hear it in my head. And so I'll put all these instructions like like into the prose where there's part of me that's trying to tell the, the narrator, like what's going through this character's head. Like they're feeling this, but they're trying to portray this. And God, I always hate it when I catch myself doing it. It always feels so overwrought. And I always find myself going, okay, you just got to trust the narrator to understand the context of the scene. I hate it so much. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of narration too, you know, especially if you get the narrator that connects right with your stuff. So you're you're writing those in specifically for the audio version. You're like notes, or are you writing them for yourself to inform like your second draft, or both? I'm I, I'm kind of writing it. it. It is it's a bizarre mix of those two things where I'm where it's part of the the like prose, but it's me almost separate from like the person writing the book, mm -hmm. trying to inject things in. Yeah, and it's always so clunky and gross. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> and, and it's one of those ticks that I don't know where I picked it up from. Like it just started happening in the last like three or four years. And, uh, and I'm actively trying to get rid of it. That's wild. That's wild. But no, that's really cool. I like, I'm really interested in how these kind of professional creativities kind of mesh around each other. You know, like, like I've had people that work on comics on the podcast and stuff before. Mm -hmm. I think you are the first person I've had on that has done narration. Yeah. And I, I find it really interesting. Like it's just it, a lot of the times in like kind of these orbits of what we do for a living, you'll, you'll bounce into other people that do kind of similar things, but like the end result is different. Yeah. Or it has a different goal or whatever. And and I love kind of seeing how those all mesh together. With audio narration, it 
it's always one of those things, at least in my experience, you know, so seven books in my experience has been that I give a very brief handful of instructions to the narrator ahead of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes I'll give them uh, a pronunciation guide that they may or may not follow. And then I get the result and that's it. Like that, that's like the extent of the exchange. Yeah. And I, it's such a, it feels like such a bare bones thing. And there's like a part of my brain that thinks, why am I not working with this person constantly? But then there's another part of my brain that's going, that would be torture for both of us. Yeah. Well, and it's weird. Like, how do you feel about that kind of thing? Um, So I have, I have interacted with authors or publishers at all ranges of that spectrum from like a ridiculous amount of information and interest to absolutely zero. Yeah. Generally, the more experienced the author, the less they try to overdo it because they're like, I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. You're a professional. You know what we're doing. We're just going to do our jobs and it'll be cool. It's like that thing about, uh, I remember seeing someone, they had like a, uh, they got like a, a an invoice and it was like, this is an invoice from somebody who's super new to it. You know, you and I are both engaging in something that is going to be life changing for both of us. And I need you to really respect how that I'm spending this $100 to do this. And then here's somebody else's thanks for the work, $10,000 buy, you know, because there's this range of expectation of how much handholding you need to do your job. Um, there's absolutely stuff that helps. Like, I want to know how things are pronounced, but I'll ask if I don't know. I'll send you a list of words and say, hey, here's how I would pronounce these. If you have any objections, let me know. I'll just do a phonetic pronunciation with like all caps for uh, for emphasis. And if there's characters that I don't know about, you know, I'll, I'll ask if there's like a really got a question. But otherwise, I'm fine with just taking it because theoretically you put everything in the book that I need. As a, as a reader, everything's supposed to be there. So as a narrator, it kind of should be too, right? Anything yeah. I need to know about the characters, it's in the book. Because that's your job to put those things in the book so that somebody who's reading it can hear those characters in their head and do that stuff. So I'm, I'm no different. Um, it is nice, though, if things are pronounced correctly. Right. Or at least consistently. My, uh, my narrator for Powder Mage, absolutely lovely older British gentleman. I really lo- loved him. He did a great job. But I remember as a little baby author emailing him like for the first time and saying, do you need a pronunciation guide? And his response was, this is a fantasy world. I can do what I want. And like, I think, I think at the time I didn't like know that I should maybe be a little annoyed by that response. Um, and I was just kind of like, Oh, okay, fine. You do what you need to do. You're a pro. Yeah. To be fair, I would never respond that way. If you had a pronunciation guide, I would use it. And I would, I would ask because you know, I, I think that books can potentially also exist beyond their book and their audiobook. What about when the movie comes out? You know, I would like it if I didn't pronounce it wrong and the movie pronounced it right, because then I look like an idiot. Or every time you do a reading in public or talk about a character and you pronounce the name correctly, and then people listen to the audiobook and they're like, what is this doofus doing? You know, I would just for my own, just to preserve my own embarrassment, I don't want <laughs> I don't want to pronounce it in a way that everybody else doesn't. Right. I'll also take character notes. Um Within reason, right? I mean, I'm not going to, if somebody comes with me and notes and says, this character needs to sound exactly like Tom Cruise, I'm going to be like, okay, no. But <laughs> if you, if Tom Cruise was your model for the character, you know, I'll bear that in mind. There's lots of character actors that you quickly can get a bead on a character from. If you tell me that your snarky character is kind of like in the movie, it would be played by Robert Downey Jr. Well, like I know exactly what you're going for. And I'm not going to like pretend to be Robert Downey Jr., but I get the gist. Right. And I'm happy to have that. That's fine with me. Right. You'll get kind of that, that thoughtful, frenetic character going, you know? Like, yeah. 
I will, I will get the vibe and I can do that vibe. Great. Without like having to do a a crappy impersonation. So I'm always fine with getting that. I, you know, it's, it's somebody else's book. And if they have something that's important to them, I'd like to know. Doesn't mean I will slavishly necessarily try to replicate it, especially if I don't agree with it. And there's cases like we have two funny characters and they both have quippy, quippy British accents in the author's mind. And I'm like, you know what, for contrast's sake, I'm the only person narrating this. We might want to choose a different accent for one of these because it's not written in, it's not said anywhere. And you'll want that contrast so that the banter is more fun because it's just a practical consideration that's going to make the book better. Yeah. Have you ever done uh, multi-narrator books? Uh, Very few, very few. Um, I've done a couple. I usually I've only done um, what's called uh, the duel where you alternate chapters based on gender. I've never done a a duet or a multicast. Okay, that's not true. I've done like a couple lines for some multicast that somebody spliced in, but not like a real full multicast. Yeah. Um, And my preference is usually just to do by myself because coordinating the character work is actually a big pain in the butt. Um, And because I tend to do fantasy, there tend to be a lot of distinct characters. It seems like it would be one of those things that like, cause like people talk about them and you'll get them occasionally on like audible where it'll be a big special thing. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like Dune or something like that. Yep. And I always wonder how that project even like pans out behind the scenes. Cause it seems like it'd be such a pain in the butt. There's a couple ways that you can do them. Um, there's the full multicasts where they literally actually get in a studio together, which is kind of increasingly rare or definitely was during COVID. And everybody's like reading their lines together or at the same time. Sometimes that happens remotely. They'll like they'll all zoom in or they'll use um, they'll use some other service and they'll read on the fly. And then the engineer has to kind of like match that tip after the fact. And then even kind of like, I don't know, maybe it happens more often, but it's certainly more labor intensive. People will literally just record their parts separately. But I think that is that's really problematic to me because it's very hard to get like the ebb and flow of prose and dialogue in a vacuum and have that fit together and feel organic. So there's just these wide range of approaches. And then you've got like the graphic audio versions where it's all sound effects and music and it's already been edited for audio too, where they'll remove like a lot of the attributions and stuff that's irrelevant in like an audio drama. And it's kind of a pruned version, but then with more special effects. They all kind of feel like distinctly different products to me. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is weird how it's essentially the same thing, but not. Yeah, very odd. Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. Talking about kind of that, that kind of dissonance with reading your own work. Was there ever a moment at which you considered hiring someone else to do Legends and Lattes? No. Or were you ready to do it yourself from the beginning? No, I was just going to do it. Well, first off, I had no expectations at all. And I was just doing this for myself. I was mostly doing this to go through the process. So it wasn't like, what would be best for the consumer or what we you know. It was just, I know how these people sound. I know how this book sounds. I do this as a job. I don't have to pay anybody. I'll just do it. And I wasn't expecting anybody to buy the book anyway. It was more, I wanted to just do the whole thing because I had the wherewithal to do so. Um, I finally finished the damn book. 
I work with authors all the time. I want to know what the publication process is like because I'm a curious person. So um, it, I was just going to always narrate it. <laughs> Did you find that an enjoyable process? It was easily the most enjoyable audiobook I've ever narrated. Yeah. Because it was just effortless. You know, um, I never had to question what the author intended. I always knew exactly how everything should be inflected. I knew what every character sounded like perfectly. I just knew what everything was. I didn't have to ask how anything was pronounced. And it's written the way that I think. So, I mean, everybody has like all these little choices about like, like in any given sentence on a page, there are often words that can be transposed and the meaning is the same. And everybody has a basic feeling about which order those words should be in. And when you read for an author who has the same predilections as you, it's way easier because you're not constantly transposing things to make them feel natural for you. Yeah. Um, but when you're on the same wavelength, it's super, super easy. It's super effortless. You know, the sentences are all the right length. They use the words that are the right words to use. The commas are always where you want them to be. It's just effortless. And it's hard to get more effortless than yourself. Yeah, for sure. Like that, that all makes sense. I like that. that see, that sounds kind of like the dream, right? Like, yeah. like I, I definitely have a problem. I've, I've struggled with my whole career, which is that when there's something that's creatively inputting to my final product, I want all the control over it. Like I want to have my fingers in there, making sure it's how I want it. And I've, I've had to basically say to myself, Brian, you either need to learn that skill to a professional level, or you just need to trust somebody who already has it. Yeah. And thankfully I've done the latter for pretty much everything. <laughs> and I'm super anal retentive and I like, I, I like having control. Um, and so, you know, I, commission my own covers. I, I like that process. And I have a background that happens to be conducive because I commissioned game art for a long time. So that was, I like having all these <laughs> intersecting skills that I can bring to bear to, you know, <laughs> force things to be the way that I want them to be. That sounds horrible and controlling. <laughs> no, but, it, but it's true. I think, I think most people that work in a creative profession, even people that don't consider themselves controlling, they want to have their fingerprints on the product. They want it to feel like what's in their brain. And, and as long as you're not a dickhead about it, I think that's yeah. perfectly understandable. There's absolutely a line um, that you don't cross because even commissioning art is a collaborative process. Somebody else is making the art ultimately, and you're trying to constrain the input that you give them so that you're not overbearing and you give them room to move. But then it's kind of like the art of being clear and the art of choosing the right person. I want to choose someone who's already on 90% of the wavelength that I want them to be on from all of their demonstrated work so that I know they don't have to shift far and I don't have to force a, you know, a square peg into a round hole. And then being very concise and understanding their job well enough that you know you're giving them the right information to make decisions that you want them to make. <laughs> yeah. And then being open to the deviations and the happy accidents that you get because you're not controlling. So you get the core things that are most important to you and then all the other cool stuff around it is a surprise. And that's really rewarding when it happens. Well, and I think that that recognizing when someone else is good at a thing in a way that makes you better. Yeah, I think that's that is a really that's a really good skill to have, because because yeah. a lot of the times you have a vision, you kind of you can tunnel in on that vision and you know, harp on something that may not actually be to the benefit of the end of your vision. Yeah. And a lot of ways, it's like working with an editor, you know, a good editor, because you have core things that are important to you that you can be willing to fight for with your editor. But you acknowledge that this is their job and they're good at it. And they're trying to make you go out without spinach between your teeth. And 
you make sure that they are allowed to and, and they understand that they're allowed to make these decisions on behalf of your work to make you look good. Yeah, I, I um, we watched a, a documentary on Miyazaki over the winter. And I the thing that struck me from it is because I love Miyazaki films. They're so cool. And, mm-hmm. and like there's so much there's so much depth to them in everything. But he does not seem like a pleasant person to work for. He's a cranky old man. Like, such a cranky old man. Very controlling. Yeah. Very controlling. Very cranky. <laughs> very opinionated. And and there's like, there's like part of me, like, there's a huge part of me that believes, like, that does not believe in that that thing. It's like that, that artist's sort of like, I can be as big of an asshole as I want yeah. as long as what comes out the other end is amazing. Like that is, and I, I really don't like that. I don't either. Like I, I find it to be very frustrating, but on the other hand, you look at somebody like Miyazaki and you're kind of like without this very, very strict like vision and the willingness to yell at your artists constantly <laughs> Like you kind of don't get that end result. And I, I don't know. I, I struggle with that. I'm not convinced of that. I'm not convinced of that. Um, I had that same feeling about like, you, you should be able to be here. You're just being brutally honest when I was young, right? When I was young, I wanted to be right all the time. And I was convinced I was because I was young and stupid and annoying. Um, and then as I got older, you know, I, that's just like, you know, I just don't, I don't want to be that person and I don't want to live that way. And I don't want other people to think of me that way. You know, I want them to be happier that they know me. Yeah. But I think that often a lot of the people that are kind and measured and still care about quality and make good things, you just don't hear about them because it's not a terribly interesting story. It's much more, it's a much more interesting video clip to watch Miyazaki literally tear the souls from the bodies of the poor young artist sitting around the table at him in the conference room than it is to just have him say, oh yeah, no, this is great. You know, it's just, there's, we, we like to watch the car wreck. Yeah. I feel, so I'll give you an example. Um, I, I remember uh, hearing about uh, the game company Rocksteady. They made the Batman Arkham Asylum games. And those were incredibly well-made games. And you always hear about, you know, game development being this horrible trash fire, which it often is of, you know, prima donnas and bad project managers and people with no social skills. But Rocksteady, by all accounts, was a place that ran nine to five, made their dates, just did work at work. And it was just like a pleasant, normal place to work. And they made this incredible stuff without all of the angst. But you you don't hear about it because it's not a terribly interesting story. And so I, I tell myself that that happens all over the place, that there's just people who are kindly getting the work done and nobody notices. Well, and I, I, I would sure like to think that, like, because that's <laughs> a pleasant world that I want to live in. Right. I, I, uh, there's a chapter in Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential where he talks about how he has like where he like his whole career was based on the knowledge of how a kitchen works and all the cocaine and all the <laughs> abuse and all of this stuff, that's just how a kitchen works. And then where he talks about going to like a, uh, a, I think it was a celebrity chef who he really respected and working there for a little while in this guy's kitchen. And everybody was super nice to each other. Everything was super well run and smooth and nobody had drug problems and and he said it just it melted his brain, like this whole idea that you could even function in this high stress environment yeah. as a decent person. It's, I think it I think it's out there. I think it works. I think it can be accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's I, such a I, it's such a much nicer goal to have, right? You know, right? To yeah. be able to to aim for that. Yeah, it it's uh, and and I think that I think it's easy to default, especially working in high high stress, lots of people around you, lots of coordination. I think it's easy to default to kind of being a jerk. Um, and and I I think it takes effort to to actually like you know stop and make yourself you know deal with people around you in a decent way. Um, and most of us struggle with that sometimes. Yeah. My, my experience is that being predictive takes care of a lot of this. Yeah. That a lot of people understand that this problem is going to arrive or that this thing is going to have to be done, but maybe somebody else will take care of it, but somebody else doesn't take care of it. And then the moment arrives and now the house is on fire. And I think that being, um, predictive and forward thinking about the challenges that you know are going to come down the pike and dealing with them ahead of time takes so much of that stress out that people can afford to be more human to each other. I don't know. <laughs> it's been my experience. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. Um, so what did you do as a game developer? Like what, what were your kind of roles? Um, I was software engineer, uh, project lead, ran companies. I was a CEO and a president and I, I did all the things. I also did art. I did some VO. I did sound design. I've done effects work. I've done everything that there is to do. Um, yeah. And I, from studios that were two people in size to studios that were 30, um, never at the huge AAA level. Um, I just never wanted to do that. And uh, I wrote for them. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, that I, a lot of them, I had projects where I was the only person on the project. So it, I just did the whole thing. And so when it came time to leave, it was like, I, okay, I did the job. <laughs> yeah. You, you felt like you had, I didn't feel like I'd left some stone unturned, you know? Yeah. You, you went in there, you did your thing. <laughs> you can move on. Did you do any audio work when you, when you were working in gaming? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the last game I did, um, uh, I was the only engineer, but, uh, and I was the main designer, but I also did all the soundtrack uh, assembly. So I licensed like 24 hours of music and I did probably 50% of the VO work. And I also managed all the VO and wrote the lines and managed the recordings and then edited the sound afterward and wrote the system for doing the lip sync. And, you know, so I just the whole, everything related to sound I did. If there was anything that was sound in the, yeah. in the game, that was what I did. Do you play games with an ear for the sound? Um, I mean, weirdly, I'm just not that crazy picky about it. I mean, I, if it's bad, I notice. And if it's great, great. But I'm not, um, it's not the same as like when you have been editing a book for a while and then you go read a book that's not well edited. Yeah. It's not the same kind of thing. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that much of an audiophile, I guess. I care about it, but I don't, I don't get into that fine grained level of, you know, annoyance. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what, what games have you been playing lately? Um, well, I played a little bit of Jedi Survivor. But it's just too long. I just don't have that much time. And I'm waiting for Tears of the Kingdom anyway. So I was really just yeah. passing time. Um, the last game I finished was, I believe, the Demon Souls remake. Because um, I didn't finish it when it first came out. But I really liked it. Yeah. Um, and then before that, probably Breath of the Wild. I don't finish that many games. As a developer, I play, you know, an hour. And I'm like, okay, I got the idea. And then I'm out. Because games are designed for such a long play now. There's so many. It's like, this is a 150-hour game. I'm like, oh my god, please no. Yeah. I don't want to climb any more towers or reveal any more territories. I just want the good stuff and I want out. Because I, I know, how this, I know that how this goes. And I'm not worried about 
time for my money. I'm just worried about a good use of my time. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely find kind of as I get older, I drift more towards games that let me put as much time into them as I want. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, like I like it when I can hit a point in the game and go, yeah, you know, I've, I've gotten everything I want to out of this game. I'm not going to play anymore. And I wake up tomorrow and I don't play that game anymore. Um, I think that was one of the beauties of Breath of the Wild. It was really well engineered for that. There's, you can finish the game really quick if you want to, and you can play as much side stuff as you want to, or whatever balance you have in between. And when you want to be done, you can be done pretty quick. Yeah. And it doesn't require the same sort of like um, narrative memory to remember what the heck is happening. You're just trying to get to the castle in the middle of the place. You don't really have to remember what anybody said or how you got there or anything else. So if you put it down and you come back a week later, you're like, you're not like, what, what was the quest? I was, well, what city am I even in? I remember playing the Witcher three and putting it down and coming back two weeks late later in the town. And I was like, I have no idea what's going on. I, I did the exact same thing. I think I put about six hours into the Witcher, walked away for a week, came back and couldn't remember anything. And so I just stopped playing. Yeah, I did the same thing. I was just totally bewildered and I, I could not get back on top of it. And and it's not like a reflection of the game itself. The game no, is beautiful. I was enjoying it. I just like, you know, as I get older, I just don't have like kind of the ability to invest as much into uh-huh. a game. Like I don't want to have to think about all that stuff. And some of it I feel like is also just like um, the sheer quantity of good quality content as compared to what we used to have. Like in days of yore, oh gosh, there was a good game out right now, and um, there wasn't going to be another one for a while. So squeeze every last drop you can out of it. You know, this is the only one you got. Enjoy it. And now it's like, well, fifty amazing games came out last week. I I can't even remember which ones they were. There's just so much good stuff. It's like going on Netflix. There's the overall quality level of content has gone up so much that for me to notice it, it has to be unbelievably exceptional. Yeah. Yeah, so true. It's like I, I play games with a bunch of my old high school buddies. We keep in touch. We talk about the new games that are coming out. And uh, and I feel like we're always we're always saying, oh, this game looks interesting. This game looks interesting. And so, like, there's always one of us who has made a note in the back of our brains to check on the release date of X game. And then if the reviews are good, then I'll mention it to the group and see if people want to play. But it feels like that's happening more and more and more. And part of me is like, this is amazing. I love it. And then the other part's just, oh, it's too much for me, man. Yeah, it's a little sad. It's like, there's literally no way I can experience this. I yeah. do enough hours don't exist in the world for me to experience all of these things. Well, and that's, and that's like, that's entertainment in general. Like you said, with like Netflix and stuff like that, like, like I barely watch kind of episodic TV anymore. Even when everybody's talking about it constantly, it's like, like this new thing, you know, like everybody got all onto Andor, you know, a few months yeah. back and I'm just, you know, like I'm exhausted by Star Wars. I'm exhausted by these kind of gritty sort of uh, drag us through the mud and lots of human emotion. And then I go back and I'm like, I'm just going to watch British panel shows. Like, I just like I I, I do this stuff for a living. I want to end my evening by laughing at something, not, you know, getting really emotionally invested. Yeah. During COVID, I watched a lot of Great British Bake Off and Fixer Upper. (laughs) <laughs> yeah i i i've only done a few episodes of great british bake-off like but it's like it's one of the shows that you watch a little bit of it and even if it's not your jam you kind of immediately go oh i see why everyone loves it yeah like, and if you stop watching it it doesn't really matter 
you haven't you got what you were going to get out of that one episode yeah it was enjoyable or it wasn't well and it's uh, this actually uh kind of feeds in nicely to like great british bake-off is like it's cozy tv it is and i wanted to talk to you a little bit about cozy fantasy because okay. legends of latte is like people have really seemed to dig their claws into this idea of kind of a low stakes enjoyable thing where the world's not blowing up yeah um and uh and i'll be totally honest i look at that and there's i i can't conceive of how to write it uh, my my whole career is built around escalating stakes large yeah. epic fantasy yeah and i really love this idea of something smaller but like my creative brain just struggles to even wrap my ha- head around it so for me it's like um it's like just normal relatable human drama and using fantasy to do something with it um to to like put a little fairy dust on it i guess so or, or to, also just to remind you that normal human drama is special and worthy of attention in the same way that you can use like sci-fi to talk about like a societal thing and you use science fiction to kind of like blow it up bigger and let you look at it in more detail i think you can do kind of the same thing with just basic normal mundane conflicts so for me it, what it's turned out like when I'm looking for like the conflict, it's like, if I can think back to my past and you remember something that happened to you that made you ache somehow, it was like a moment of decision where you're like, shit, what am I going to do? You know, am I going to take this job? If this is what it's going to do to my family. Or, you know, I've had this friendship for this many years and I'm going to lose it over this. Is this, is this actually the point where I'm going to kill this friendship? And you can, I think everybody can identify those points in their life where you've had that, that moment of ache, knowing that something has got to change. And I think that if you can find that, that that's a relatable conflict that doesn't have to involve death or enormously high stakes. So for Legends and Lattes, I mean, it's like it was for me, it was really relatable. I made video games in my 40s and I quit doing it to do another job in a industry that I never knew anything about, never planned to do, had no it was not a twinkle in my eye when I was a kid. And there's a certain like fear to doing that. I was older, I had a family. It's like a big deal. And I did it. And there were rewards that came with it, you know, discovering this community of people I didn't know existed that it turned out I really needed and couldn't imagine not having once I discovered that. So I know a lot of other people have had similar experiences or are contemplating a similar experience. I'm in my 40s. I've been doing this job my whole life and I hate it. This is not what I want to do. Am I trapped? Is the inertia going to carry on until I die or can I do something else? And so that's relatable and it's a conflict. And that's effectively the, the initial core conflict of legends and lattes it's not but nobody has to die but you still can understand it and you can still feel it um and i think we talked about the british bake-off a second ago there's no i mean there's lots of like i don't i don't know if intense is the right word but there's emotional moments in the great british bake-off but there's not actually a villain yeah (laughs) there's not a bad guy i guess paul hollywood is maybe kind of a villain but he's a charming villain you know um and he's not really a bad guy but still, you care about the drama of these, but it's a very human, normal drama. You know, I wanted to do something and I struggled with it and I succeeded or I didn't. And maybe it was just a cake or it was a bread or whatever, but it's still engaging. Um, so writing something with that kind of focus is kind of, I don't know, it feels nice yeah. because I, I've, I've read so much high intensity. For, and as a, as a narrator, I read basically action adventure fantasy. So it's all crazy stakes stuff. The world's going to end. The universe is going to end. A demon's going to invade something. It's always huge. 
So when I sat down to write the book, I just wanted to write what I wasn't reading every day, which was like closer to like a cozy mystery. Nobody casts guys in cozy mysteries in audiobooks, by the way. <laughs> I bet. I went off the reservation on that one. But anyway. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's just a different way of looking at this genre that we all know and love, right? And there's lots of different, you can find lots of different kind of, you know, the scale of stakes yeah. is tends to vary quite a lot. But in epic fantasy and and all of the previous stuff, all the stuff, you know, D&D and, mm-hmm. and all of this sort of um, the, you know, orcs, wizards and dwarves kind of stuff we grew up with. Yeah. It does tend to be very high stakes. It tends yep. to be, you know, the great wizard so-and-so is going to end the world if we don't stab him in the face. Like, yep. so I think Terry Pratchett kind of pioneered this. I think Terry Pratchett was. I don't know if he's the first, but I think I feel to me he's one of the most well known for taking the trappings of fantasy and using them to talk about something else. Yeah. And he largely talked about like a societal construct or something. But he also I mean, they're pretty they're basically human stories. And you can kind of tell reading Terry Pratchett that he likes people and he cares about people. And, you know, uh, about the the thief that has to run a post office or, you know, they're about death, discovering what it's like to be human or, or whatever. And they're not about people winning wars and the destruction of the world very often. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's funny because everybody talks about, I think it's Nightwatch is the one that everyone talks about. Yeah. Yeah. Vimes is awesome. G- going Postal and Mort are my two favorite. Going Postal is great. And it's so good. I, I love Going Postal. I really like yeah. Reaper Man. That's one of my favorites. Reaper Man remains one of my favorites. And Going Postal and Guards Guards and the Nightwatch and... There's, there's a lot of, there's so many Terry Pratchett's that you, there's, you're, you're going to find a good one. The other thing I love about Terry Pratchett, which I didn't initially intend to do, but now definitely fully intend to do, is that he wrote a series that doesn't require continuity to appreciate. Every book can stand on its own, but if you read them, regardless of what order you read them, they sort of accrete into this richer and richer world, regardless of which direction you come in at, which I think is yeah. kind of amazing. And especially, again, now that I'm old and I can't remember what happened in the video game or the book that I read last year, I appreciate it because I can just enjoy the story. And I get enough other stuff that it still feels richer. Yeah. 
I, I honestly, I would kill to create a world where I can just slap new books into it without continuity. Like, I, like I kind of do it a little bit with my my self published novellas. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll yeah, you know, I'll just write a side story that really has nothing to do with what's going on in the main series. But, mm-hmm. but honestly, I would love to be able to do it with my main series. Like, to have six books that are all st- vaguely standalone. And don't really need you to know what's going on. This is my stated aim. This is what I'm attempting to do because that's a good aim. And I totally get why you'd go for it. It also kind of like takes some of the pressure off because it's like, I only have to land the plane every book. I don't have to land the plane for the series. You know, if I never write another book or everybody decides they hate this one, or I go back to my cave and only narrate, it's all right. I didn't leave it dangling. I don't have to feel this residual shame for the rest of my life that I didn't finish the series. <laughs> well, and I, I definitely have like that thing with uh, I feel like both of my Powder Mage trilogies were about a third of a book too short. Like I, I felt like the third book in both of those trilogies should have been significantly longer. And it drives me nuts because I don't want to write 300,000 word books but I also didn't have enough to put another book on and that yeah. kind of thing. It really, oh. it, it gets under my skin. I try not to think about it too much. I can see why I can see why Ooh. that trying to do that all in a certain place, you know, it, you can totally see why uh, episodic, I don't know, like, like, like law and order, man. I used to watch law and order and it didn't, it didn't matter what happened on the previous episode. No, you just jump in and watch, you know, these guys, these beat cops and then, and then a, a really sanctimonious, you know, prosecutor. It's always fun. <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, it is interesting how we kind of, you, you kind of see people experimenting constantly, mm-hmm. but it's interesting what kind of, what kind of latches on in greater society in terms of the type of media that we consume and the kind of stories that we jump on board with. Yeah. And you know, people try to experiment with things all the time. And most of the time people fail. Um, but occasionally you see something pop out of nowhere and suddenly this is the thing that you know, Leg- Legends Lattes is a really good example. Suddenly you have science fiction fantasy editors saying, hey, where's your cozy fantasy? I want to see more of that. Where's your cozy fantasy? Yeah. And these and, are words that people put next to each other all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, and uh, I feel like a lot of it's just like environment at times, like the, the right environment, right? For something to germinate. Everybody's weary of COVID, you know. They, we've all watched Game of Thrones. We watched it end. <laughs> you know, we've had all the blood and guts. And also the world just seems really dire. Everything seems to be on fire. And I can't even go to my local coffee shop and see somebody's face. It's got a mask on, you know, and we've got to get out as quickly as possible because we're all going to get the cooties. So just going to a freaking coffee shop is like the height of escape is fantasy for me at that point. It's yeah. just like, man, I would just love to see another human being and smell a baked good and sit for an hour and browse the internet in a coffee shop. That sounds amazing. So I don't know. I feel like there's just a time element. I think Legends and Lattes happen to have a very clear pitch that happened to work really well at a specific time. You look at the book and you know exactly what it is and you read the book and it happens to be exactly what you thought it was, which is useful. Um, and it just happened to accidentally happen at a time when everybody, not everybody, but a significant number of people wanted that. Yeah. Um, and I just happened to bumble through it. I spent years thinking about this next huge scale epic fantasy that I wanted to write. And then I sold it not that long before COVID hit. 
And then I find myself trying to go through, this is one of the reasons why I'm not publishing books as quickly as I did with Powder Mage, is that I suddenly find myself writing something really high stakes, really kind of emotionally intensive in a time where the entire world is high stakes and emotionally intensive. Yep. And man, it's it makes it a lot harder to write. It doesn't mean I, I love what I do any less, but holy crap, it's just... It slows you down when suddenly it's not escapist anymore. Yeah, it's not. It becomes more. Does, does it feel just more like work to you, or is it just like harder to di- differentiate the stakes of what you're writing from the, the stakes of the world? It, I both. I think both because it it suddenly feels like it suddenly feels like I'm writing allegory, which I've I've never wanted to. I've never been a person that likes to inject my political thoughts into you know, my books or anything like that, mm-hmm. you know, occasionally stuff sneaks in. Um, but man, like suddenly you're like, oh, I'm like trying to redesign society in my head. I don't want to do that. I just want to s- tell a story where people stab each other. <laughs> like, and it, and so you're, you're like constantly fighting yourself on this. And, and honestly, I, I mean, this, this is a long way of me saying that the, the, the cozy fantasy, fantasy thing sounds very attractive. Um, and I absolutely see why you like it. I absolutely see why people are grabbing it. Yeah. And the weird thing is, I, I certainly never set out to do it. I mean, every book I ever tried to write before this was not this. They were all more complicated and more dramatic and had higher stakes and were another thing. This just happened to be what I needed at the time. And also, because I'd failed every other time, I was trying to scale back my ambitions to something that I might actually finish in NaNoWriMo. That was it. So... It would certainly be a lie to say that I had any sort of prescient thoughts about that it would be a good time for this or that it would be well-received, because I absolutely did not. It was purely self-serving. Um, but also, that's not the only kind of thing I want to write. Like, I really like it, and I like cozy fiction, but I like lots of stuff. I like horror. I like everything. And I hope to not spend my entire life writing cozy fantasy. That's not really what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and my hope is that I can also write books in the world that I've got that don't have to be cozy. What I was planning to write for my second book was a murder mystery it was going to be a murder mystery yeah it was going to be like okay maybe it sounds cozy it was basically going to be like uh uh you know murder she wrote fantasy right and but you know people died you know stuff happened yeah. it wasn't just like cinnamon rolls and opening up your small business um and my hope was to just do different kind of genres of stuff whatever i felt like doing i don't know we'll see <laughs> every one of my trilogies so far has had one point of view that's an inspector style character yeah that's investigating things and one of these days, and it's always the character I enjoy writing the most. And one of these days, I'm going to give in to that predilection and just write epic fantasy murder mystery. <laughs> because that, honestly, I think you absolutely should. It's just so like it. It always winds up being fun. And you know what? I love Sherlock Holmes. I love yeah. All, I like Poirot. I love all of that stuff. It's always so so digestible, and it does feel cozy because it's. It tends to be lower stakes, you know? Yeah. Like, it's, yeah, it's an individual. It's a one, it's one murder, maybe five. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> right? And it already happened. The world's not going to end if, you know, you don't find out who killed the widow on the moor, you know? I mean, I want my fantasy Columbo, basically. Yeah. No, that's fun. I, I, if only Peter Falk could have tights. Yeah. <laughs> that's perfect. I... I even I I definitely find myself like my creative mind definitely drifts all the time. And I like I'll find myself trying to pitch things to myself 
knowing that I don't have time to work on them, <laughs> knowing that I'm, ne- I'm not going to get to this in the next five years. Like, like just like two months ago, I, uh, I spent, I think two or three days working on a, um, a science fiction audio drama. Oh, wow. And I, I absolutely loved it. I got about three days and went in and went, I got to get back to what I'm being paid to do. <laughs> like, this is so much fun. Nobody will buy it. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if other authors run into that, but I, I, I do it three or four times a year. <laughs> I'm still discovering what I will actually do. Feels like it's just I'm like jumping between trains, but I have to keep I have to stay on one of the trains right now. I haven't I feel like I don't have any processes in place anymore and I'm just going to have to fumble my way to some sort of equilibrium. So I'm not even sure how I'm going to work on things. It's going to be very interesting. Well, as far as I can tell, you're kind of like at the start of like your third major career, right? Kind of. But the second one is still going. Yeah. And I'm not getting off of it. So it's kind of a weird balancing act. I mean, I I never read a lot of books. And I'm scheduled to like 26. So like my, my future is kind of predetermined in a lot of ways. And it's been kind of an interesting adjustment to figure out how to do ongoing scheduled writing while still doing that other job, which is, yeah, there's been some grinding of the gears. Oh, I bet. Whew. Yeah, that's that's quite a thing. Um, well, anyways, I, I have kept you quite a long time, but uh, but I always end these episodes uh, by asking each of my guests the same question, um, which is. What's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Last thing that I ate that blew my mind. Um, oh my God. Why is this hard? This shouldn't be hard. Um, I love that every time I ask that question, every single person answers differently. And it's not just what they answer, but the way they answer. Because some people genuinely do not care. And other people know their answer the second the word leaves my mouth. I've just got such a such an incredible memory of it. Yeah. Man. Um, I am going to say, uh, there's this, I'm not a vegetarian, but there's this, this vegan restaurant in in our city called Root. And we went there and they have a restaurant week. And, um, I had this really good, God, what was it? It's like a, it was like cauliflower that had been like kind of, um, like not barbecued exactly, but it was like kind of roasted and it had these amazing spices on. I don't even know what it was. I don't know what was on it, but it was super, super great. And it was like, oh my God, this is, this cauliflower is pretty mind blowing cauliflower, given that it's cauliflower. Yeah. I, I'm always impressed when a place dresses up cauliflower because you never expect it to be good because like you said, and then it's suddenly really good. And you're like, wow, cauliflower. it's like Brussels sprouts being good now. Yeah. But then they like, they get the perfect roast. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, and there's something on it. Like it maybe there's, it's a bit hot or something like that. And oh, mm-hmm. like veggies are one of those things. I, I grew up in the Midwest where, you know, vegetable is a curse word and hmm. um, it vegetables are one of those things that I am always impressed when they taste nice, even though it's not that hard to make veggies taste nice. That's an easy way to impress me. Yep, absolutely. That was narrator and author Travis Baldry. You can find links to Travis's social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Be sure to check out Travis's next book, Bookshops and Bone Dust, out this November. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. 
You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, Bradley Thornhill, and Roberto Fontata for their backing on Patreon. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.